Hello and welcome to the Hammer and Tulip podcast with me, Graham Phillips, and the very venerable Gareth Dix. Hello, Gareth. Hey, how you doing? I'm well, my friend. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, we've got a good one. Today we're talking about the subject of ecumenicalism. As uh, Was it... F- which father was it in Father Ted now? Father Jack. Father it? Jack, yes. That would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was just thinking of that myself, actually. That's the first time I ever heard the word ecumenical <laughs> mentioned. And I had no idea what it meant, even though he said it however many times he said it. Oh, yes, Father, it would. It would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> well, today we're going to be talking about ecumenicalism. Um, it's a big word. Um, don't know if we'll still be saying it properly by the end of the conversation <laughs> but we'll try so we'll talk a bit about that it's kind of linked to what we talked about uh, last time really which is theological triage um, we did get some really good feedback from that so it was really good to know that uh, that it helped and, and maybe uh, encouraged you in your thinking about unity which we've said already is a is a truly biblical thing to seek after isn't it Gareth um, no it really is and I was just going to say that I'm not entirely sure if it's ecumenicalism or ecumenism um, which have a way it rolls off the tongue really <laughs> ecumenicalism or ecumenism yeah, ecumenicalism is actually easier to say even though it's slightly longer so yeah, we'll go with that let's just yeah I mean to be honest let's just go with one let's pick yeah. one and, and go for that one uh, I'm sure people will, will have their say but yeah we're going to talk about that tonight um, and as I say linked to the last conversation so last time out was kind of a springboard for this really because as Christians as Christian leaders in the UK um, we are looking to find Christian unity where we can uh, we know that's biblical we have a heart to do mission with other Christian brothers and sisters in the UK and so um, this is this is really part of our kind of outworking of that as we do this podcast this is informing our uh, journey in that respect and so if you're listening in you're in the same boat then um, yeah we hope that the conversation helps um, so yeah we're going to be talking a bit about that tonight uh, and also just wanted to um, remark a little bit on the news that this week uh, the Bible Gateway app or the Bible Gateway website has has actually taken the decision to uh, remove the Passion Translation uh, from its website it's basically like a website where you would go you know like a bit like Bible Hub you Google Bible verse and then it'll give you a drop down menu and you can pick your translation big fan of bible gateway yeah yeah it's that kind of thing so it's a really useful tool and they've removed the passion now if you i mean i'm assuming that people know what the passion translation is but for the sake of maybe uh the one person who doesn't know what yeah. it is uh, it's a translation let's say inverted commas um of the bible which has been done sort of book by book by a guy called Dr. Brian Simmons. And uh, it's become really popular in the charismatic world over the last kind of four or five years, would you say, Gareth, around that time? Um, it's been, yeah, it's been recent years and quite a lot of people have said to me, you know, oh, have you have you tried the Passion Translation? And, and uh, so many different people would be saying that to me over the last few years. So it has become really popular and really quite mainstream. Yeah, I, I remember a few years back it, it began to get used at Bethel Um, you know I'm speaking to somebody who's been out to Bethel a a couple of times Um, so you know I'm not talking to somebody who's you know grown up a a sort of an ardent hater of all that goes on out of Redding California not at all Um, but uh, yeah I remember it started to get used from the pulpit there and uh, then you know Jesus culture picked it up uh, banning and a few of the others started using it and then it made its way over to the UK and I remember it you know friends of mine began to use it really love it and uh i was kind of like i was vanilla on it i didn't really i was neutral on it at the beginning yeah um but what's all the hype about kind of yeah what's the hype about and then i think you know just listening to it you could tell it's a very flowery translation it's very flowery very kind of like oh there's lots of passionate words in there and i guess it goes with the territory if you're going to call it the passion translation um so yeah alarm bells began to ring for me uh when i started to study um the biblical languages because uh, this this was new for me i started doing this about two two three years ago and and as i did you know obviously you're then 
you're then starting to see how translations work you know you're starting to see oh wow okay like the niv goes with this way and they're translating this particular phrase that way whereas the esv is doing it this way and you start to see a little bit of the way that bible translations work and then i remember comparing it to the passion translation and just being like okay uh, <laughs> yeah that that whole sentence there doesn't seem to be attached to the original text and that for me was a red flag now like i'll be up front with you like it i don't like i don't personally like the sound of the passion translation i find it too much um and uh, the message isn't my cup of tea but people will often say to me oh graham you're a party pooper about the passion translation you know because i've been vocal about it the last kind of year or so and i often get people contact me and just be like you know why are you such a misery guts about the passion you know i bet you hate the message as well don't you and i'll be like well i i don't i don't dislike the passion for the same reason i don't like the message right yeah i don't like the message because i just I just don't like it, right? <laughs> and just, by, by its own um, admission, like it's not re- it. it's not really a translation. It's more of a it's sort of like a paraphrase, and it's not put forward as sort of holy writ. It's kind of like this is a, a yeah. paraphrase of the Bible, but it's not. They wouldn't say it's in that, no, the Bible in, the, in that sense. But Eugene Peterson, the guy that put the, pa- the sorry the message, the guy that put the message translation together, what you can say about the guy is that he's a trained linguist yeah okay so he's trained in the biblical languages and even if you want to read the message it's paraphrastic yes but it does it is kind of anchored in the original text okay so there's nothing in there that's getting pulled in completely out of nowhere it's just doing what the niv and the nlt do in trying to translate thought for thought yeah and it's just taking it a bit further out there colloquializing the language making it more kind of modern you know and it wouldn't whereas, be about you wouldn't preach from the message as such you whereas you wouldn't preach from it whereas you could preach from um, the nlt or the niv for example yeah you're right yeah you wouldn't preach from it but it, it could be a useful reading guide um but the, here's the difference right this this is why if you're listening in and you're thinking why are you ragging on the passion translation you know don't be such a misery guts it's important to know that this guy dr brian simmons claims that he is trained in the biblical languages he claims he's trained in greek hebrew uh, aramaic uh, and other forms of uh, semitic languages right that's not true uh no. <laughs> it's not true which is a massive bombshell so the people that he worked for uh which he, he worked for a an organization that did actually translate the bible into tribal languages in south america among other places and brian claims to have worked with them in translating the bible into one of these kind of tribal dialects uh, in the in the 80s um that has since been proven to be false that the director of that organization has come out publicly and said simmons was never employed as a translator nor does he have the skills and the training to be a translator and he completely disavows the passion translation itself as a bible translation now that's massive but first off that should be a huge red flag to you that this person claiming to have put together a bible translation isn't actually qualified or trained to do so in fact simmons said um himself he said that uh, part of his revelation or his ability in translating greek came from direct revelation from god god gave him secret insights into the greek language in an encounter that nobody else has had <laughs> yeah, no one else has had that uh, so that again massive red flag um more than that he he has been very very secretive about how he's put the translation together he said that he's worked with a team of translators but when pushed he hasn't answered who those translators are and whether they are qualified to be translating the bible so these are all massive red flags uh, things that you should be concerned about if you're using the passion translation as your main bible uh, or even as a secondary bible translation that should be a real issue for you why should it be an issue for me mate it's because the word of god matters right yeah (laughs) absolutely i just 
I don't understand how this this can't be seen as important to people. I just don't get it. And I've had people push back on me about this. And in a moment, I'll just give you a quick example of how the Passion Translation goes so wrong. I'll show you Ephesians 1, verse 1 and 2 in the Greek, and then I'll show you what the Passion does with it, uh, right? Yeah. And you'll see, you'll see it's just it's completely off base, right? But I just don't understand why Christians defend it. I don't understand why Christians have it. Like, the Bible is the literal word of God, right? It's yeah. it's God's word to us. It's what he has provided to his church for, for our upbuilding, for our nourishment, so that we might know him. He's revealed himself in this. So surely the content matters, right? Every word matters. Every word's got to matter to us because it's going to inform what we know of God. And so if somebody's just taking liberties with the words pretending that those words are actually there in the original languages in there there is deception and there is a leading astray of god's people uh to believe things that may not actually be accurate about no. god that that's my concern that's my concern um so yeah i just don't i may i'll be honest like, it frustrates me it it's frustrates like it's me. like sort of like an emotionalism kind of pushed kind of version of of the bible if you could even yeah, call it that it's it's like wanting to push people towards feeling a certain way rather than actually sitting down and reading a really faithful translation where you actually study certain words and, and those words have so much power yeah because like- it how can you not be how can you not be moved by reading through Ephesians and it's I actually find like I mean I could say I love the NLT and I find it really nice for reading through the the Old Testament so particularly the Old Testament's good for that but I have to say I always prefer reading the New Testament in the ESV or New American Standard just because I find that okay reading the Old Testament's a bit harder in the literal because it's it's so dense Um, so it can be helpful to have something that just kind of paraphrases a little bit what's going on but when you get into the letters and the epistles and all those things and the gospels you kind of feel like actually i really want this absolutely as precise as possible yeah definitely um i would 100 percent agree and like th- this this reflects really badly um on those who've pushed the passion translation like it doesn't look good for bethel no that they have repped this right it doesn't look good for some other friends of mine who've repped the passion uh and told people to go out and get it and now this is coming out, right, in in the general kind of mainstream. I mean, it's been out there for a while. Mike Winger, for example, has done a lot of good work exposing the Passion Translation. I, I would encourage anybody out there to watch his videos. He does a far better job than I do on this. But, um, yeah, let me just show you. So Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, right? So I, I'll, I've got my, my NA28, my, my Greek New Testament, and I've got the Passion Translation open, right? So I'm just going to read from the from the Greek and just give you like a kind of brutal rough kind of translation of what that is and then we'll read the passion so we've got paulos apostolos christu yesu diathelematos theu tois hagios tois husin and epheso kai pistois en christu yesu charis humin kai arene apotheo patros hemon Kai Kurio Yesu Christu. So literally that translates as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, through or by the will of God to the holy ones, to those who are in in Ephesus, and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God the Fa- our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's verse two. Verse two is grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ that's a literal rendering which by the way following it along in the esv absolutely exactly the same is that right well. yeah well, exactly go. the same from from the english standard version so the esv is like a bloodhound with the greek as is absolutely. the as is the nasb so that's what you've got in in the literal translation now now listen to this right i'm just going to translate for you verses one and two from the passion So verse 1, Ephesians 1 in the Passion says, Dear friends, my name is Paul. I was chosen by God to be an apostle of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, there's some words in there that aren't in the original, but I would give that a pass because 
it's not an absolute bastardization of what's there. It's, no. it's just a slight embellishment. But listen to this, verse 2. I'm writing this letter to all the devoted believers who've been made holy by being one with Jesus, the anointed one. May God himself, the heavenly father of our Lord Jesus Christ, release grace over you and impart total well-being into your lives. Now, none of that is there. <laughs> none of that is there. Yeah right that that, that, that back, is terrible back it's just of that, awful it's not mate it, it's not even a disputed text it's not even in any other manuscripts that we're not seeing here right it's literally just been added on bryce by brian simmons and this kind of may god himself the heavenly father of our lord jesus christ release grace over you and impart total well-being into your lives it's just not there you and, don't and get poetic license when you're translating the bible not do you? in I a mean, bible translation because no. here's the key issue right we're talking about a translation what's the job of a translation it's to convey the meaning of an original text into a new language right that's what a translation is that's the job you have to do if you're going to call your translation an actual translation otherwise it's not a translation it's no. something else it's something else right it's your own views on what's written and the problem is that the passion calls itself a translation if it never set out to be a translation then okay but it did right yeah yeah and it's deceived a lot of people and now a lot of people young christians excited christians have this in their house and it's their go-to text and that's what concerns me about it gareth um yeah and uh yeah you know people will say to me well i'm really blessed by it and i go well well okay but the problem is you might be being blessed and encouraged by something that you think's in the bible that's actually not yeah right and and that's that is a problem worry. that's, the that's problem. a real problem that is yeah so if you if you are listening in and you you know you own passion translations we're not here to to tell you you've got to go and throw them in the bin and burn them <laughs> but we would say you know, given what we've said, please do go and do a bit more research. Do consider um, what we've said. Um, get yourself some other brilliant translations. As we said, Gareth's um, Instagram account, Bible Books Theology, he does a lot of work reviewing Bibles. And, um, you know, Gareth, give us a heads up. What would you recommend in terms of people's translations? What should you be reading? I think, to be honest, I think you, you need a literal version of the Bible, whether that is because everyone has different opinions, but I'd say English Standard Version, New American Standard Bible, uh, New King James Version, perhaps, yeah. you know, whatever your preference. Uh, the, some people prefer the King James, which is a, obviously a great version, original version, but it's a bit dated now. So people like to have the New King James because of the Texas Receptus original text in the yeah. Greek, but other people, the critical text, the ESV or the uh, New American Standard. If you want to go a little bit less literal, the Christian Standard Bible is a good faithful Bible. Um, but I would personally, I would try and have one of either ESV, New King James or New American Standard uh, in there, one of those three, so that you've got a literal version of the Bible and then have something like the NIV, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, New Living Translation, one of those. Yeah. Maybe you might want to have the King James as well, just so that you can. That's nice to sort of sometimes yeah, yeah. look back on the King James. And, I mean, that's a, such that's the original, isn't it? Really, in terms of the English version of the Bible. So, yeah. No, I say I've I'd got myself a nice King, new King James here, which I've marked up heavily. But you know, if people wanted to kind of get their hands on a, on a nice uh, copy of one of those Bibles, um, where can they find your Instagram account, Gareth? Because you do some nice uh, recommendations, don't you? Yeah, sure. So it's basically just Bible books theology. That's just what it's known as Bible books theology on Instagram and just review all kinds of different things, different things that are coming out, different a lot of books on there, a lot of systematic theology and various Bibles and translations that, that are coming out and available. Excellent. Yeah, go check that out. Well worth it. Um, so yeah, tonight our main topic of discussion is ecumenicalism. <laughs> there we got it right, okay? So Yeah, ecumenicalism, that's what we're going to call it. Applause, please. Um, yeah. We don't have an audience here, so it's, it sometimes feels a little bit lonely, doesn't it, Gareth? But uh, we, it does, we should imagine it? that you're clapping... Cheering and clapping for saying it right. So long, yeah. So uh, ecumenicalism. So what is, mate, you get this job, what is ecumenicalism when it's at home? Well, it's basically this 
in a nutshell, it's an organized attempt to bring about cooperation and unity among Christians. Right. So we're trying to bring people together. You're a Christian. Well, well, let's all come together and, and talk. Or on an international level, you've got the World Council of Churches. And this looks to bring together churches across a very wide spectrum of, of Christendom. So anybody who yeah. would profess to be a Christian, you're going to try and get them together and get them to have some kind of unity fellowship and and come together and be friends and have fellowship those sorts of things got you so this is basically an attempt to gather actual kind of professing christian churches together yeah in a unity movement and so this isn't we're not talking about multi-faith movement here is that slightly different well then that's an interesting one because ecumenicalism this is where it's a bit blurred because ecumenicalism can also be a movement towards uniting different groups of religions so right. you can end up into a multi-faith area as well this is where ecumenicalism becomes quite problematic because it's not just limited to people who would profess to be christians there's also a push towards that's why you'll have people inviting in an anglican church i've heard of anglican churches or chapels inviting a muslim imam to come and speak yeah, yeah, because, yeah, well, yeah. we can learn stuff from an imam, so we'd invite him to come and speak in our church. So there's this kind of just being religious, of having a religion of some sort, regardless of what it might be, would be enough in a very broad ecumenicalism. Yeah, so, um, you know, generally it's it, ecumenicalism is a movement that's wanting to bring about unity between professing Christians of all denominations, right? Yeah. Um, but then... Would we say would we say that that's a biblical thing to be doing? Um, like in terms of is that pursuit actually biblical? Um, in terms of the, the you know the side of it that we discussed first, where it's it's trying to gather professed Christians together. Like, can we build a case for that biblically? I think the answer to that is a tricky a tricky one. I would say it's yes and no. Yeah. It's a yes and no answer because the problem with ecumenicalism is it often places unity over doctrine. Um, we'll come to that in a moment. But right. the, the previous podcast that we did, we looked at theological triage. And this is relevant in that we were looking at the, how we put things in the in the priority of, of doctrine and beliefs, putting them in order of importance. So we'd have a first order, which is yep. the main salvation issues. Yep. You know, the, the Trinity, the person and work of Christ and justification by faith alone. And anything that contradicts the first order uh, is, is heresy. Yeah. Now, and then, of course, you've got the second order, which is, we've already looked at this, but just to summarize things like baptism, the roles of women in ministry, charismatic gifts and the sovereignty of God and salvation. So these aren't salvation issues, but they might determine what church or denomination a person will worship and fellowship yeah. in. So to answer that, the question, is it biblical? I would say... If it's trying to gather people who actually disagree on first order doctrine, then no, it's not. Because yeah, you're essentially okay. trying yeah. to get people who are unbelievers, essentially, to mix with people who are believers. If you deny the deity of Christ yeah. and his atoning work on the cross and justification by faith alone, well, really, you don't have fellowship whereas if it's just something like you've got an arminian and a calvinist well you know yeah okay they might determine what churches we go to or whatever but or the charismatic gifts or baptism but actually we do believe we agree on all the main first order doctrines so in that sense i'll say yes it would it's be good. biblical to have some unity yeah. and it's absolutely right and good but it is a you know a yes no answer i see what you mean i think yeah, you know, obviously we know that we're we're encouraged we're encouraged from scripture to to have unity. Psalm one three three one, isn't it? It's uh, you know um, how ah oh, what is it? How let me try and yeah how, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Hallelujah! Absolutely right. Obviously, yeah. John seventeen, Jesus prays that we be one. Um, so yeah, we know that that's a good thing. But I think um, what you said is true because any unity that we do have surely has to be built upon on truth doesn't it, it has to be built upon yeah. an ascent to certainly those kind of level one doctrines we talked about because i was looking at we, we did a study a, a, a few months back on first john the the, the letter of first john and um talks a ton about yeah. obviously like these false teachers who've kind of come out 
of the church community that John's writing to. You know, obviously he says, you know, they they've, they went out from us and they were never for, they were never of us. They've gone out from us. And it, the whole letter, First John, is basically him just kind of cautioning these believers against having communion with these people who've kind of gone away from the Christian community, but still were having influence, still were wanting to kind of fellowship and bring in some of their ideas. And basically these people are denied uh, Christ. They're denied Christ being the, the eternal son of God, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's a big issue. And John's actually saying, no, like these people don't have the son. They don't have the father either, right? They are not Christians, even though they profess to be Christians. And that was a bit eye-opening for us because I think... Um, as Christians, maybe traditionally, we're, we're sort of uh, raised with this idea that we should always err on the side of union and friendship and not not be mean. Uh, <laughs> no. And, but, but then when I read 2 John and he says, uh, he, he says this, he says, uh, everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. This is uh, 2 John verse 9. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And then he goes on and says in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give yeah. him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So are these false teachers who are denying the son right he's like don't even say good morning to them now yeah. for a brit that's going to be hard because it we're is, just raised to, to just be like polite and you know why, why would it be mean to somebody like that but that's not the way that john sees it john doesn't see this as a kind of a good manners thing he sees no. this as an eternal destiny thing you know, no, these, these people are wolves in sheep's clothing and what they're trying to do is what a wolf would do to sheep. They're trying to effectively destroy you. And so therefore, don't extend a welcome. Don't bring them into your house. Don't dialogue with them. Now, that's a really, really tough one, isn't it? But basically, I think this is proving that any unity that we have has to be built on certainly those an agreement to those central tier one doctrines. Yeah, I'm right at the beginning of the, 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 the beginnings of the church in the Acts of the Apostle, when on the day of Pentecost, when all those 3,000 odd people came to faith in Jerusalem, it says in Acts 2 verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, first and foremost. Right. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and yeah. fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And notice that teaching doctrine comes first and fellowship mm. they didn't all hang out and they weren't all friends and they decided what they agreed on and what they liked and didn't like and worked <laughs> out what they could agree on that's not even in there it's like they're told what to believe and they fellowship underneath it and this is uh, this is really the issue that ecumenicalism this is why i'm so wary of it is ecumenicalism has got a really poor track record of putting unity before doctrine and, right. and you often see this happening. And, and this is what happens when you place unity before doctrine, then you inevitably you just let all kinds of false teaching into the church. And it's not long before it gets to a point where, well, this isn't really Christian fellowship, is it? Mm, because we've yeah. kind of just given up so much ground that what do we really believe anymore? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we're talking about really would be when we're seeking unity with churches denominations that that don't affirm things like jesus being co-eternal you know uh with god things like that right so inevitably and that rules out having fellowship with jehovah's witnesses for example yeah. um also it, it would be any sort of big issue that intersects with the dot with the gospel um you know sort of big issues of of, of uh justification things like that you know um that separate christianity from other world religions like you know we can't have an agreement with the muslim about no. how how we're saved because we don't believe that we're saved in the same way uh so yeah so i see i see totally how that's working um i think that it gets tricky doesn't it when when we're not thinking necessarily about you know ecumenicalism or, or unity with with Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses, but you know, let's say for example, you're in a 
you're in a city you want to have fellowship with other churches in the city but you know you've got like you've got churches that would preach or teach that you know the bible yeah it's a collection of literature that it's it's basically men doing their best to understand god is it inspired no not really like the kind of rob bell view right progressive sort of liberal christianity yeah like and so yeah the bible can be useful but we shouldn't take it as being authoritative we we should we certainly shouldn't be taking any lead from scripture on issues of sexuality or gender and can we really believe that it's right when it says that christ is the only way uh you know so like it's kind of borderline things like that where it's not but i mean i don't think it's borderline but like yeah yeah. yeah, it's things like that that are a little less obvious where maybe they're not outrightly denying the sun uh but they are denying things like the inspiration of scripture which which is slightly different like how does that play out you know like do we see that as a as a reason to not have unity there yeah i think in the, it's very clear you kind of got up, got to ask him some big questions you've got to say well what do you believe about the authority of scripture then yeah is all scripture god breathed is it yeah. inerrant inspired and infallible and if they say no so well there's that first order doctrine there that you know, again this is the first order stuff so what about the exclusive nature of christ or the atoning work of christ on the cross or salvation being by grace through faith and not works yeah you know, because yeah. they're going to go off on one, aren't they, about social social action and social justice. And, you yeah. know, I'm all yeah, for yeah. social action, by the way. I'm very passionate about it. But once you start making the whole church's role is to just do social action and social justice mm. and, and you just love people and feed people and give them clothes, but you never once actually share the gospel with them and tell them they need the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, and an understanding just, of what the gospel is. I see that. Yeah, yeah. not actually you know, believe in the gospel, teach, sharing the gospel. You've got a problem there. And so I would say on one level you'd want to be friends with with people and this is why I think quite strongly that I want to be friends with people I want to love people and be kind to people um, I was just thinking when I lived in Essex I was a minister in Essex for a while and uh, my next door neighbours two doors down a lovely couple they were Muslims and every Christmas we would exchange they'd, you know, they'd give me a, a box of chocolates and an is- as Islamic Christmas card yeah. I would give them a box of chocolates and a Christmas card with Bible verses on it you know it, it was quite yeah. amusing every Christmas we did this that's friendship that's kindness but we're not f- in fellowship and I think that's the difference it's you know I've got to we've got to meet and worship with people who believe the main things on a first order level yeah because you know why are we in unity together we're in unity surely to to build the kingdom of God uh, to to preach the gospel together um, to live out the gospel together as Christians and so if we're not going to agree on what the gospel is that's that's going to be a problem right Uh, and I think this this for me is a biggie is that openness and clarity about what we believe in terms of doctrine yeah that can be quite sort of a big step you know a necessary step in terms of who we have unity with and and in a day when people can be so obtuse about what they actually believe it'd be so difficult to find out what a particular church really does believe you know they'll just kind of hang up the classic denominational statement of faith but when you start listening to what they preach it's a a different thing altogether you know so i think this is key is is basically if we're going to have unity then there has to be like a kind of more confessional approach to it like we're going to we're going to enter into unity but but here's what we believe we're going to put this down we're going to sign this rather than it just being like oh you're a christian okay you say you're a christian yeah i'm I'm a christian too great like let's let's go for this Uh, which is a you know in my experience how a lot of unity movements do start they they don't start with a you know a statement of faith on the table um they start with a coffee in the middle of the table yeah right and uh you'll notice this in the charismatic <laughs> you'll notice this in the charismatic movement though because there isn't yeah. i mean let's just let's be you know honest and fair charismatics 
don't really tend to do doctrine and systematic theology. That's just the truth no, of it. Uh, they true. just don't do theology. So that's why you end up with, in the charismatic side of the church, such a wide range of everything from kind of like all the liberalism we've just mentioned through yeah. to pretty sound theologically and, and, and being kind of broadly reformed, uh, at least on one level. But there's no kind of central, this is what we believe. Yeah, uh, it, It's all very vague and, oh, well, we're charismatic. So, and I've seen so many what I'd call liberal charismatics and kind of conservative charismatics that that particular movement is because I think the charismatic movement has just got too big. And I think what's happened is a lot of people are starting, particularly in the UK, a lot of people are starting to think, hang on, I, I kind of... I feel lost in this sea of I don't know what anyone believes anymore. We haven't got any real statement of faith or belief statement or creeds no. or confessions. What do we actually stand for and believe? And it's yeah. just become very watered down and very confusing. Well, I remember I got I got kind of uh, I got pulled up in uh, in ministry a few years back for bringing in the Nicene Creed and beginning to read that as a church together. And it brought a lot of confusion for people because the you know, charismatic church just weren't used to reading historic confessions of faith, um, you know. And it was considered kind of backwards and yeah. like religious and old-fashioned. Like, Why are you doing this? You know, this is just bringing religion into it. And um, you know, but what what we said last time is, you know, but we unite around the truth of the word of god we, we have unity around these amazing doctrines about who our god is that's actually how we grow in love for one another and in love for god like the two are, they have a, a relationship they're codependent you know our love for god feeds our love for one another you know and our love for one another feeds our love for god right and so i would I, I would i did receive a bit of pushback for that but then you know, I've, I've since seen charismatic churches, although they'll reject reading out these historic confessions of faith, they'll read the Bethel offering. You know, they'll put a Bethel offering yeah. up on the screen. It'll be like, oh, you know, we're just believing you for jobs and better jobs, raises and bonuses, checks, sales and commissions, you know, all of that sort of thing. And you're like, well, that's a creed. Yeah, it's, it's just it not a biblical one. No, you know, um, so it's whatever's popular, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, I think it's it's imperative, isn't it, that certainly in charismatic spheres that we do pay more attention to what what others who we're in unity with believe. Um, I think that's so important. Otherwise, what are we doing it for? You know, uh, what are we having that unity for? And is it actually biblical? Because if we're not going to inspect what people believe then we could be doing exactly what John in 2 John tells us not to do. We, we are bringing in the teaching. We're sitting down with this false teacher. We're dialoguing with them. We're greeting them. We're having them in our house. And as John says, we're taking part in their wicked works. Yeah. Which we don't, we don't want to do that, right? So I think there has to be some level of being open about what we believe and requiring that of those who we're in unity with. Would you say that's fair? I think it's absolutely right, yeah. And it's it's just it's really just kind of keeping it simple, like what does the Bible teach? What do we believe? And really wanting to hold ourselves accountable to that. And in that yeah. sense, like, there is an, an exclusivity to that, but then the Bible Bible's truth claims are exclusive. Absolutely, yeah. So these Order 1 doctrines, like we talked about last time out, those are the ones I think really that we're saying you want to be agreed on those. Like you don't want to be raising the bar too high. So it's like, oh, you know, you can only be in our club if you are, you know, a, a classic pre-mill or you're kind of like <laughs> well, I'm out then, aren't I? <laughs> pre-millennial, you know, all of that. Or, or if you're going to say, oh, you can only be in our club if you're an Arminian or you can only be in our club, if you're, all of that. We, we, we would say you're raising the bar too high uh, there and these are important, but they shouldn't be they shouldn't be seen as kind of boundaries in the way of having unity uh, with other Christians. Um, yeah, I think that that's important. And I have seen, I have seen an interesting, because obviously I'm have largely been in the last 10 years of my ministry, been in the kind of uh, the charismatic world. Um, and I have seen kind of, how would I put this carefully? There is a real heart in the charismatic church for unity and there's a, a growing heart amongst some charismatic leaders for a reconciliation with with the roman church with roman catholic church and that's been growing 
in the last sort of 20 years really yeah um, and you know i've been at events where they've been they've brought up kind of like catholic priests to come and preach i've been at events where um they you know say right we're going to take bread and wine now there'll be communion at the front and mass at the back right and so the, what there is there there's a sort of gentle blurring of the of the boundaries um i've even heard it preached like oh you know these gruff naughty men in the sort of 1500s who you know who who made such a hoo-ha about yeah. doctrine and all you know we just need to repent and say sorry and just all get along and there's this kind of blurring of the lines of why the reformation happened and uh, almost like a kind of a shame if i can say that from the charismatic church about the reformation um and yeah and i i, I it, i'll be honest we said last time we believe that there are there are genuine christians who are in the catholic church who are genuine Absolutely christians right, who profess yeah. to be catholic um and i know some and so we're not saying that everyone in the catholic church isn't saved but there are doctrines in the catholic church that i believe are not biblical um and these people these reformers um some of them burnt at the stake for standing for what scripture really does present on the issue of justification and i find it sort of a bit concerning that there's this effort to have unity without any real frank discussion about the doctrines that really brought about the reformation in the first place and so yeah. i don't know if you could speak to that at all but that's those are my thoughts yeah sure i mean just briefly uh, uh, by the way i would say before i say anything a good book to read on this because there's only so much i can say in a short amount of time but rc yeah. sproul has written a brilliant book called are we together a protestant analyzes roman catholicism so mm. i really recommend that it's just good. a really good book to read that and he's very simple he goes through them very systematically and but i'm going to pick a few of those out the main one obviously the obvious one is justification by faith alone in fact, yeah. uh, to clarify, Roman Catholicism, it does affirm the grace of God and yes, the work of Jesus Christ and faith. We have to make that point, but it does not affirm uh, the biblical teaching of the reformers that it is grace by grace alone mm. in christ alone by faith alone to the glory of god alone it's faith by faith alone not mm. faith plus works and so roman catholicism teaches ultimately the justification comes through the function of the sacraments That's right but a person can lose their saving faith when they commit a particular sin so that is a mortal sin and that means if a person commits a mortal sin they have to win back their salvation through penance i.e works rather than the sacrifice of christ already mm. i love it in the book of the anglican book of common prayer where it says that the sacrifice of christ is a full sufficient oblation and satisfaction for sin mm. and and that is really the truth of it but they the roman catholic church wouldn't teach that and it's also applies to the wider church and to quote and to quote rc sproul he says from this book that I already mentioned, he says, if justification is not by faith or trust in Christ alone, but occurs primarily by means of the sacraments, most importantly, the sacraments of baptism and penance, which require the function of the priest to perform, then Protestant churches cannot provide salvation and Rome must be the only one true church. But if Protestants are correct in their doctrine of justification, Rome is not a true church at all. Rome cannot have it both ways. So there's that huge question of justification by faith and the, the role of the, of the church and, and, the, and the clergy in the Catholic Church. Then there's the Lord's Supper as another obvious one. And they teach transubstantiation of the elements um, in the yeah. Catholic Mass. So this is the idea that the body of Christ is broken anew, despite the scriptures telling us that Christ's body was broken for us once and for all. And they have this little square box, this little square ornate box on the communion table called the tabernacle. And that contains the bread and the wine that's been transformed into the body and blood of Christ. So that's why I have all the bowing and genuflecting, because they actually believe that it's the literal body and blood of Christ in the Box. we do not teach this is that this is not biblical we're doing this in uh, in remembrance of christ uh, and we are reminding ourselves of what he's done for us but and it's a powerful reminder but but we aren't this the body of christ is not being broken anew in that sense 
Yeah. Then you've got the papacy. This is a big one, actually. Um, the office of the Pope as the supreme head of the church. But let's just take a look. What does the Bible say about that? Just to, just to pick a, a few verses. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things in subjection under his, that's Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And one yeah. more in Matthew 21.42, where the Lord Jesus referring to Psalm 118.22, which speaks prophetically of him. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Pope is not the head of the, ch of the church, Christ is. Mm. And many a faithful Protestant has been burnt at the stake for, for daring to say otherwise. And most notably in my hometown of Oxford, there's this huge memorial, the Martyrs Memorial, in, in memory of, of the, those faithful yeah. bishops, Cramner, Latimer and Ridley. And Tom, and yeah, in Broad Street. And Thomas, uh, uh, Thomas Cramner, argued strongly that the Pope is not the head of the church, Christ is, mm. and, and who's burnt at the stake. Uh, and one more in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, article 6, it also says, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. So that is pretty clear. The Pope is not the head of the church, Christ is. And one more, which I think is another biggie, really, and that is the veneration of Mary. Yeah. And, and the doctrine, and to me, I, I, I find this crazy, but the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, and that is the belief that Mary herself was born without original sin. And this is, this is something that Mary herself would deny in the Gospel of Luke, where at the beginning of Luke 1 in verses 47 and 46, Mary says, And my soul exalts in the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Saviour. Yes. <laughs> if, Mary, if Mary was born without sin, then she would not need a saviour, would she? And therefore that leads logically towards the question of how could Mary intercede for us rather than Christ if she was a sinner just like everybody else and is now with the Lord like every other saint who has departed from this earth? There's yeah. also the belief that Mary is a second Eve. And I've heard this one um, told me by, by one particular Catholic man said to me, you know, we believe that Mar Mary is a second Eve. Uh, and th this is a, a popular parallel to Christ being the second Adam. We read about that in, in the second half of Romans chapter five. And Mary's, the idea that Mary's act of obedience made up for Eve's act of disobedience. And they're, this, they're also on top of that is this idea of Mary being the co-redemptrix. So rather than submitting humbly to God's command that she would conceive and bear a son and say, let it be so, as in I submit to that, I, I consent to that. The idea is that the whole of the salvation of humanity hung on Mary's response and will as the only sinless woman in the world. Like... I mean, so just there's a few examples of some of the key problems. And this is not that I want to be horrible yeah. about it, but it's just, it is what it is. No, and I think there's the, you know, there's a doctrines of the infallibility of the church. Yeah. You know, in terms of the, it's another uh, one. The, the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church, that if they speak on any matter of doctrine, that they speak infallibly. Um, so that means that, you know, that when they look at things like the Council of Trent, which was their sort of counter reformation. Uh, statement that would be in, that would be infallible those those things they've said would still stand today you know so for example in the Council of Trent it says this if anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened let him be anathema let yeah, him be wow. damned so that would be a standing infallible statement of the Catholic Church and then we have the statements of the popes who are also said to be infallible when they speak authoritatively on a matter of doctrine we've got this from Pope Innocent, Innocent III uh, with our hearts we believe with our lips we confess but one church, not that of the heretics, but the home, Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church outside which we believe that no one is saved um 
We've got Pope Pius in 1854. It must be held by faith that outside the apostolic Roman church, no one can be saved. This is the only ark of salvation. He shall not have entered in therein, shall perish in the flood. Um, and then Pope Boniface, uh, Boniface, Boniface, I think. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but in the tricky pronunciation, yeah. Very tricky. But uh, he said this, we declare, say, define and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff, to the Pope. Yeah. So there we've got doctrines being brought in, clearly unscriptural, particularly the, the, the last one there, um, that uh, would be said to be infallible by the Roman Church. And so we've got lots of issues. If we're going to be in unity with the Catholic Church, then everything that Gareth said is going to be an issue in terms of justification, in terms of the worship of Mary. And then we also have to deal with the fact that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe that anyone outside the Roman Catholic Church is actually saved. Yeah, that's actually um, one I didn't mention, but you're absolutely right. So, that's a biggie. That's why they don't have communion with Anglicans and other, you know, right. other denominations. You don't get to have communion with with uh, Catholics. That's a big giveaway, really, isn't and it? So the the reaching for unity seems to be all be coming from the kind of charismatic Protestant side, yeah, and not really from Rome, as far as I can tell. Um, and I would be concerned that these issues of doctrine are not being looked into but rather are being sort of brushed under the carpet and just oh let's all kiss and make up you know and so like we said we can have friendship with real christians who may be um you know defining themselves as catholic or being in the catholic church there's friendship there uh, they are brothers but the teaching of the catholic church is is something that we cannot have unity no. with in terms of fellowship we, we can't unite with that sort of teaching that anathematizes us um says that we're not that we're reprobate effectively so um yeah so it's i mean we could go on and on there's lots more yeah, to yeah. talk about garris recommended are we together rc sprawl i'll recommend one um for more information on the what roman catholics what the roman catholic church let's say teaches uh, be careful with my words but um it's a book by james r white and it's the roman catholic controversy um and I, I recommend that it's been helpful for me and you know what do some research yourself and, and you yeah. can always you can go and read the council of trent uh, you can go and read the um catechism of the catholic church you can read vatican II. you know these these things are are out there and they are well worth reading um to to help you understand more so that's us talking really about ecumenicalism in in how it relates to um other sort of so-called christian groups uh sex with jw's uh, mormons uh, liberal christians and things like that um but there is a sort of a darker side to the ecumenical movement um that we probably should mention and that that would be what we probably know more as the kind of uh, multi-faith movement yeah um so this is something that's very popular and to me it just speaks of like we're moving towards the end times i think and and we're sort of uh, moving yeah. towards that place where I there, there so. is there is a genuine kind of push for a one world religion and uh you know you see them everywhere don't you now sort of multi-faith uh cooperations multi-faith this multi-faith that um you know, chaplaincy's really shifted over the last probably oh yeah, 10, 15 years time. really shifted towards multi-faith when it was just like the Christian or the Catholic chaplaincy and now it's kind of everything thrown in together that's right so I mean this all, what's this all about really where does it come from and what what's going on I think that's a really good question. I mean, where, where it comes from exactly, I think uh, I would struggle to pinpoint exactly where, it, where it's come from. But I, I've started to see a trend towards that particular in the kind of civic uh, things like hospitals and prisons and universities and all these sorts mm. of things that, that over the last probably couple of decades, it, it's very noticeably moved in that way. Definitely and not, in the world, yeah. And not only that, you, you've noticed more and more, like I think it was, it was, it was a, there was a, a chapel or a college in uh, in, in, in Oxford um, one of the university chapels or was it the main university chapel invited an imam a, a Muslim imam to come speak as the guest speaker for one of their even songs yeah. or whatever they were doing so we're starting to see more and more of this happening and there is really a push towards you'll see this happening more where it's you kind of hear the language of 
you know, we want to have an interfaith dialogue. So That's there's it, these yeah. sort of, we want to get an Anglican vicar and we want to get an imam and we want to get, you know, a Hindu priest or whatever and you know a, a Jewish rabbi we want to get them together around a table and and get them to talk to each other and there's this real and you think why why do you want to do this Which but there's is, this it's an essentially it's a pagan idea isn't it yeah that we should all get together because essentially we all just believe the same thing really don't we it's that kind of well pluralism postmodernism where yeah. it's like well is there really an objective truth or is it just that we're all in a room blindfolded with an elephant in the middle and we're all just grabbing onto a different part of the elephant's body and it's a very subtle we, undermining of yeah, christian faith that's really together. what it is it is um and it really yeah i mean i think that's my personal view anyway i think i think the thing is worldly and i think it comes out of that kind of postmodern mindset that's that's just a kind of a denial really of objective truth certainly in terms of objective truth about Christianity um so I mean I yeah I just I don't I I don't see that there's any grounds for that in terms of actually having unity across religions oh no scripture but, at all but you, you can certainly see an uh, uh, inclusivism what you might call you know yeah. in air commons Christian inclusivism here where and for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about in inclusivism is really just the idea that one religion is right but it accommodates other religions outside their faith so Graham and I, we, you know, we would be we're exclusive Christians. We would say that, that the truth claims of Christ are exclusive. There is salvation under no one for no one mm. else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We hold to an exclusive faith that the Christian faith is exclusive by definition. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. But so-called Christian inclusivism is the idea that whilst one religion is right, you know, it accommodates the other religions outside of their faith right. as having salvation as well so one key example of this and you can look this up on youtube if you look for billy graham's infamous tv interview with dr robert Schuler in in it was may 1997 and billy graham literally says this he says God is calling a people out of the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the non-believing world. We're talking about atheists here from the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ. Really? Wow. Because wow. they have been called by God. Really? I, wow. I mean, and he goes on yeah. to say, they may not know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that, well, what's the Bible tell us about our hearts, that the heart is deceitful uh, and desperately wicked? But he says, they know in their hearts that they need something they do not have, and they turn to the only light they have. So he's just talking about a light from within now. And I think that they are saved and they're going to be with us in heaven. And you think, wow. And, and he said that. You can literally go on YouTube and listen to him say that. And Billy Graham blessed him for all those years of preaching the gospel faithfully. And he came out and said that. And personally, and I'll stick my neck out here, but I will say that Billy Graham was very pro-ecumenical. He was. Yeah, and he was very anti-kind of denominational. He really didn't like denominations. He wanted this big ecumenical movement. And you just see the shift further and further away from the exclusivity of the Christian gospel so that you can actually go on national television and say something like that yeah it's true i mean you know he was very influenced by um ecumenical thought wasn't he billy graham is certainly yeah. in his latter years and and i love watching a good old like 1950s 1960s billy graham evangelical oh, he was on fire in those days wasn't on he yeah. fire yeah and so love what he had to say then but he did drift um certainly towards that more liberal uh kind of understanding of of salvation which is was sad it's sad to see that um you know I, we hear joe Osteen saying things like that yeah. as well that kind of like inclusivism in terms of salvation we certainly in you know the last sort of 20 years about mate time's going quite quick isn't it yeah, but like it's um, very quick in terms of you know the years but like uh the emergent church like if you're around in sort of the early 2000s and you've got like yeah. Rob Bell, um, you know... Brian then, McLaren, Doug Padgett. Brian yeah. Coming out. And their, their sort of move was really towards that kind of multi-faith thing. And it would be very kind of, you know, cutting edge of them to invite 
a Muslim to come and share in one of their Sunday gatherings, or they they didn't really meet on Sundays, did they? The emergent church, they no. They wanted to throw all that out the window, but yeah, like, you, you, had, you had to have a goatee and little round glasses, didn't you? Really- <laughs> yeah, and definitely not meet on a Sunday morning, you know. No, um, but uh, yeah, they'd invite people from other faiths to come and share um, and see the whole kind of exclusive salvation in Christ thing as being a sort of Western what we would call kind of white supremacist idea that it was arrogant to suggest that you know and so um a lot of stereotyping and broad brush strokes wasn't there in those days oh big time big time so um yeah i i I think uh, that's that's the nub of it really is i don't think that there's any biblical case at all for quote-unquote dialoguing uh with other faith groups to try and inform our own faith there can absolutely be friendship and there should be right we want to be good neighbors we want to be good ambassadors for christ and that means that we should be approachable we should be you know looking out to love people and to respect and honor these people who've been made in god's image but uh you know that doesn't mean inviting them to step behind the pulpit of our church no not at all all. or, or saying hey we've got a gospel crusade would you like to come preach on Allah on the first night <laughs> you know, um, so it, you know this this would sound like very simple stuff but in these days um, it, nothing is taken for granted anymore and one thing I've noticed that, which is just a little aside you never get imams inviting a Christian gospel <laughs> preacher to the local mosque do you ever you don't, you don't it's only the it's only the sort of liberal Christians who invite you know people of other religions you never get us lot you know gospel preaching kind of firebrand goes to local mosque you know under the invitation of the imam that's never going to happen is it you know you don't i mean we were invited for a meal once at a mosque uh, it's going back a few years now because we we would go into town and you know they'd have their quran stand out me and a few friends would get into heated discussions with them and in the end they just invited us around for some food at the mosque they, they were yeah. uh, Ahmadiyya muslims um so slightly different from your average muslims in fact i think kind of mainstream uh is it shia muslims or i think it's shia and sunni uh, disavow the Amadeus so <laughs> yeah but um but yeah you know they, they were very kind but certainly were not cool about us um preaching or reading from the bible in their mosque uh no I can imagine it is a very kind of like wokey thing isn't it like these days uh but uh yeah I, I think this I think this is uh spot on really in terms of how we want to be navigating unity is that essentially any unity that we have has to be built upon agreement to tier one yeah completely right um so we need to be open about what we believe uh others who we're in unity with that's required of them also we don't want to be setting the bar too high right so we don't want to be saying you've got to agree with us on you know um the sovereignty of God and salvation, right? Just to, just to have unity. Uh, we don't want to be saying we have to have the same view on eschatology to have unity, but no. those, those, those top tier doctrines, we've got to have agreement to those. Um, and we want to have friendship with people who are outside of that. We want to be winsome in our witness to them. We want to be kind, uh, warm. But Gareth, there is a difference, isn't there, between, you know, fellowship and friendship, I think, isn't there? Yeah, completely. And this is what I think is so important. Like I mentioned about my neighbours who are Muslims and we got so well and there's a genuine love and respect there. But the point is that Christian fellowship comes from being devoted to following Christian teaching and sound doctrine. Mm. And in it's believing the truth about Christ and about salvation and being shepherded away from error where theological drift can lead to moral drift and vice versa. That's what that what we're concerned about is, is true fellowship where our aim is to persevere in the faith, become more like Christ and and inherit eternal eternal life at the end of our life our relationship Mm. with god is more important than anything else so therefore fellowship is exclusive in that sense we're wanting to gather with people who ultimately we believe the same truths and you know the interesting thing about it is within christian fellowship you'll find that you'll have fellowship with people you have you have 
literally absolutely nothing in common with yeah. and yet because you believe the central truth and because of that you are brothers and sisters in Christ there's such a tight bond that goes beyond anything in the world where you can have a tighter bond with a brother and sister in Christ more than your own family you know there's like your own like cousins it. or uncles aunties whatever and there's nothing like it whereas you can have you know, friends, you've got tons of things in common. You've got the same sense of humor. You watch the same shows. You like, you just love the same sport, whatever it is. You get on like a house on fire, but you don't believe the same things. They don't believe yeah. in Christ. They don't follow Christ. And so that kind of friendship is never, or that relationship is never going to be quite so strong or ever as strong as a, a Christian fellowship. And that's why I think particularly, this is why I think your close friends, your inner circle should be strong Christians, particularly mm. for, for new converts as well. And, and for ex people who are more mature converts, when you've got people in your inner circle who are not believers, you can be led astray. You can be pulled away from Christ. So that is why I'd say there is a massive difference between fellowship and friendship. And I'd also say that we should absolutely look to have friendships with people who aren't Christians and of different religions or whatever. Um, and we should pray for them and actually pray that God might use that friendship to bring people into into faith and into absolutely. the church. Yeah. But we, at the same time, we've got to be wise at thinking actually fellowship is that is that close inner circle and the people that we really are, are close with that really we need to have that Christian fellowship with them. Mm, absolutely absolutely well listen uh, we hope we hope that this conversation's been of use to you uh, this evening please do check out our last episode which was on theological triage uh, if you're just coming to this fresh it's the first time you listen to hammer and tuna we would advise you go back and listen to the first one that will help to kind of parse out what we've said in this episode uh, and we'll be back again soon with a fresh discussion uh, which we look forward to please do subscribe to the podcast and uh, if you enjoy it go ahead and give us a little rating leave us a little comment uh, it always helps to get others uh, listening along and hopefully it encourages more christians to to be thoughtful in their faith uh, so until next time we just want to say god bless you all and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side god bless take care god bless bye-bye